1: Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 29, The O'Neill Family Business. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Last time, we covered the foundation of the Confederation of Kilkenny, or the Irish Catholic Confederation, or just the Confederacy. Created to manage the war effort against Dublin, the Confederacy will be the most successful example of Irish self-government until the 20th century. They minted coins, collected taxes, and recruited for the army all while being at war in one form or another against all comers for the next decade. Last time, we touched on the return of Irish veterans from the Thirty Years' War, as officers, as well as rank-and-file soldiers, returned to the land of their birth with training and experience. We've seen the role played by Irish mercenaries in the Thirty Years' War when covering the involvement of soldiers from their neighbouring nations, the Scots and the English. Aside from notable service in the Spanish- Austrian and French armies, among others, Irish officers were famously involved in the assassination of Albrecht von Wallenstein, the generalissimo of the Emperor's armies. Walter Butler and Walter Devereux, aided by Scots Walter Leslie and John Gordon, first killed Wallenstein's loyal subordinates at a feast before ambushing the general in his bed. The assassins were rewarded by the Emperor, who had ordered Wallenstein's death or capture but while this act was received with delight or outrage by contemporaries, depending on their view of Wallenstein and the Emperor Ferdinand, the fact remains that British and Irish mercenaries were present in armies across Europe and on every side of the Thirty Years' War. Over the course of this season on the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, we've seen how these Continental veterans were summoned back as the political crises deteriorated into open conflict. First with the Bishops' Wars, with Scottish officers and soldiers being recalled by the Covenanters and the King. When that same King fled London and both he and the English Parliament began to prepare for war against the other, many English veterans pledged their services and experience to one or the other. And of course, between the Bishops' Wars and the First English Civil War was the Irish Rebellion of 1641, planned partly with the input of Irish émigrés and veterans, who made their way home to Ireland, especially during 1642. Which brings us to one of those Irish veteran émigrés who had been consulted by Sir Phelan O'Neill and the other ringleaders of the Rebellion, Owen Roe O'Neill. Born in 1583, Owen was the nephew of the great Earl of Tyrone, Hugh O'Neill. His upbringing seems to have been focused on two themes which would dominate his life, military training, and his education by Franciscan friars. After fighting alongside his uncle and father in the Nine Years' War, the young O'Neill apparently found some success in this occupation. When the war came to an end, with his uncle's submission to the English crown, he packed up and went with two brothers to go visit family on the continent. That family was a cousin, the son of the great Earl, and the colonel of an Irish regiment in Spanish service. From here on, when I mention O'Neill, I mean Owen Roe O'Neill, not the dozen or so other O'Neills who are in this story. It may get confusing, but I'll try and keep it clear. Anyway, O'Neill and his brothers were commissioned as captains in that regiment as it campaigned against the Dutch. O'Neill continued to make a name for himself, especially at the Siege of Rheinberg. With the flight of the earls in 1607, O'Neill's opportunities back home, already slim, got even slimmer a wave of confiscations hit his close family, with a few kinsmen, including a brother, executed. In the years between the flight and the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War, the regiment's colonel, the cousin who had given O'Neill his commission, died, as did at least two more of the great earl's sons, as well as the great earl himself. A family tragedy, of course, though O'Neill had already seen six of his own brothers die, so maybe he was getting used to it. Either way, the important thing is that this left the leadership of the émigré O'Neill community, and through this the wider Irish exile community, with an opening. Now, the youngest surviving son of the great earl, Shane, was technically the colonel of the O'Neill regiment, as he was his brother's heir. But Shane O'Neill was only 11 when his brother died. Not many 11-year-olds can command a regiment of battle-hardened soldiers, and so a sort of regimental regency was put in place. The Franciscan College in Louvain, in the Spanish Netherlands, had some kind of authority over the O'Neill Regiment, though whether this was formal or merely a moral authority, I'm not sure. Whatever the case, they pulled enough strings for Owen Rowe O'Neill to become the sergeant major of the regiment, and its de facto commander. Not for the first or last time, O'Neill's military career and Franciscan allegiance were entwined. The governments of Ireland and England looked at the Irish O'Neill Regiment with concern. Now, O'Neill had not been among the flight of the earls, and while he had fought with his uncle in the Nine Years' War, that was, theoretically, all in the past. And yet, and yet, there were many in both Dublin and London who were a little wary of this Catholic-Irish regiment in Spanish service, helmed by the family which had caused so much trouble. In the event of another war between Spain and the Stuart monarchy, the O'Neills might manoeuvre their loyal service to Madrid into support for an invasion of Ireland, which was, after all, the ever-present nightmare of the English crown. But it's not like O'Neill had a, quote, crusading attitude directed at recovering their homeland and promoting their faith. Oh, that's a quote from Gerald Casway's biography of O'Neill, because of those one constant in O'Neill's time in Europe, is that he was always on the lookout for a way to reclaim his family lands in Ulster and restore Catholic rule in Ireland. So, it wasn't a baseless fear for the governments of Dublin and London to have. Attempts to stoke the personal, and family rivalries within the regiment, notably between O'Neill and the old English officer Thomas Preston, would be a favourite tactic of theirs to try and defang this threat. O'Neill's service after gaining command of the regiment and prior to the Thirty Years' War was mostly as the military governor of Rheinberg, where he was stationed for eight years. Once Frederick of the Palatine accepted the Bohemian crown and kicked off that three-decade palaver, O'Neill led the regiment against the Dutch once again, distinguishing himself at the sieges of Breda and Bergen-Op-Zoom. During these years, one Stuart King died, and another took the throne. And once again, Spain had to contend with that damp collection of islands in the North Sea. Once again, London and Dublin sought to wedge open the cracks within the O'Neill regiment, while O'Neill and his Franciscan allies developed various ways to threaten London's control of Ireland from supporting rebellions to outright invasion. One of these invasion plans was presented to Philippe IV of Spain in November 1627, but it received a lukewarm reception. It was a novel idea, involving a detailed military administration which would be supported by Catholic Europe, at least until a suitable Catholic monarch could be crowned but it was never seriously considered, and the conflict with the Stuarts died down until peace was signed in 1630. But while Spain was now at peace with the Stuarts, it was not at peace with the rest of Europe, and the demands for more Irish soldiers only increased. This is where our earlier episodes on Lord Deputy Wentworth's rule in Ireland come in. Wentworth did what he could to obstruct Spanish recruiting efforts in his jurisdiction – Getting more dispossessed and troublesome Catholics out of the kingdom was a short-term benefit, but what if they came back, and now with the experience and training to really cause trouble? For his part, O'Neill strengthened his already strong connections with the land of his birth, which would come in handy. As the situation in the Stuart kingdoms deteriorated, O'Neill marked the high point of his Spanish career with the defence of Artois, against a French force which heavily outnumbered his by more than ten to one. He held out for more than two months, with both defending and besieging armies increasingly low on supplies. After a final sortie failed to drive off a determined French effort to break through the walls, O'Neill surrendered, and he and his army were given safe passage. It was a defeat, but a heroic one, and O'Neill was lauded by the Spanish. In the meantime, O'Neill's connections in Ireland bore fruit in 1641 when he was contacted by his kinsmen who were conspiring against Dublin, but not against the King. Military support against Charles's English enemies in return for concessions on religion and land. That was the plan. The conspiracy was quite far-ranging, as seen by the Irish Parliament granting O'Neill recruiting licences which had been previously denied under Wentworth, the former Lord Deputy unable to interfere because he was about a head shorter at that point. But this conspiracy failed before it even began, with colonels within the Irish army getting cold feet after the King came to terms with the Scots. The plan required Charles to be at odds with his British kingdoms and without this conflict there was much less guarantee that the plan would succeed. But not all the conspirators gave up, and so instead we have Sir Phelim's seizure of Charlemont and the failed coup in Dublin in October 1641. O'Neill did what he could to arrange support, both political and practical, for the rebellion, but he was not about to just sit on the sidelines. This was worrying for a few people, and for a few reasons. Rumours that O'Neill would return concerned the government forces in Dublin, for obvious reasons. Here was an experienced commander with a name that meant something. He was an O'Neill. He'd fought with the Great Earl and was arguably the heir to his legacy, no matter that another man claimed that right. His return would be a serious blow for the government and a boon for the rebels. And yet there were those among the rebels who were also not pleased at the idea of O'Neill's return. Some people were wary of O'Neill's ambitions. What if he used the military authority, which would almost certainly be his, to seize political control too? Others had personal reasons. The most obvious was Sir Phelan O'Neill, his cousin, who had started this whole thing, but then seriously dropped the ball. Owen Rowe's return would almost certainly mean the elder O'Neill took over command of the Ulster forces from Serphalem. O'Neill did what he could to alleviate the concerns of the rebels. He would only command armies if the rebel leadership, which was soon to become the Confederacy, asked him to. Other than that, he would serve God's will, and, of course, reclaim the confiscated inheritance due him from his father. And with permission granted by his Spanish superiors, and with an eye to avoid English spies, O'Neill first went to the port of Ostend before, on the 28th of June, 1642, boarding a frigate loaded with Irish veterans and military supplies, hoisted a flag bearing the Irish harp on a green field, and set sail for home.
0: With the Lucky Lands Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now, and can you guess the twist?
1: Owen Roe O'Neill's ship sailed around Scotland to better avoid English patrols, and on the 8th of July it berthed at Doe Castle in Donegal, the most northwesterly county in Ireland. For the first time in 35 years, O'Neill was back on Irish soil. O'Neill's motivations in returning to Ireland have been repeatedly debated, especially over the last few decades, and generally they can be seen as three interwoven causes. The religious cause, to see Catholicism restored to its rightful place in Ireland. The political cause, to see the Irish free to govern Ireland themselves. And the personal, to see the restoration of his familial estates and to establish himself as a figure of note in the new political and religious order he sought to create. Historians emphasise one aspect or another, but generally speaking they all agree that whichever individual cause was the priority, it was entangled with the other two. Philip McClory, in his Assessing the Religious, Political, and Personal Motivations of Owen Rowe O'Neill in Returning to and Campaigning in Ireland, 1642-1649, to 1649, he makes a compelling case, that O'Neill's political instincts were far better than he's traditionally given credit for. As we'll see in future Irish episodes, the factionalism of the Confederacy will give any other revolutionary government a run for its money, and O'Neill has been seen as too fixated on his goals to properly navigate these politics. McClory argues that, on the contrary, O'Neill was, above all, pragmatic... Prior to 1641, his schemes involving Ireland centred around removing the kingdom from the clutches of the Stuarts entirely, because after a successful invasion, this would be possible. But with the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, O'Neill seems happy enough to settle for autonomy. Charles I was, after all, in an incredibly weak position, and if he could be made to concede his control over Ireland in all but name, that would appease O'Neill. So O'Neill towed the Royalist line of the Confederacy, which, remember, repeatedly claimed to be loyal to the person of Charles I. Their problem was with evil councillors, yada yada yada, and for many of the leaders of the Confederacy, this loyalty was completely genuine. Many were from old English families who had been the traditional allies of the English crown in Ireland. They hadn't changed. It was the English who had changed with their conversion to Protestantism. But loyalty to the Crown wasn't isolated to the Old English. It was a unifying feature of the Confederacy, after all, and the Oath of Association was eagerly taken up by Gaelic-Irish as much as anyone. O'Neill, so McClory argues, was a notable exception to this royalism. Owen Rowe O'Neill was pragmatic, despite his ideological convictions, In truth, he was conceding little, being prepared to tolerate Charles I's nominal control of Ireland only. He goes on, It is clear the Ulster General was disingenuous in his self-professed royalism. The motivation for O'Neill to pretend such allegiance was the relative inability of the monarchy to interfere in Ireland's affairs due to the Civil War. Charles I was attractive to defer to precisely because he was weak, Enabling O'Neill to gain more concessions from a struggling Crown. End quote. As the Irish War goes on, we'll see more of O'Neill and be able to decide for ourselves what he hoped post-war Ireland would look like. But anyway, back to the narrative. Sir Phelim O'Neill met his cousin in Donegal and escorted him to Charlemont, where they arrived on the 13th of August. The rebels celebrated the return of the lost son of the O'Neills, but in an interesting bit of theatre, Sir Phelan was, according to one eyewitness, the only one present who did not remove his hat in the presence of his cousin. This hinted at the apparent resentment Sir Phelan felt towards being upstaged by his cousin, and foreshadowed a contest between the two O'Neills, one the leader of the émigré O'Neills who had not bent the knee, the other the leader of the so-called Deserving O'Neills, who had submitted to the Crown and played a role in the post-flight order. One represented those who had land and sought to preserve it, the other represented those who had had their family holdings seized by the Crown and parceled out to men just like Sir Phalem. Sir Phalem did have the benefit of having sparked the rebellion, and he took little blame in the bungling of the Dublin coup. Yet this meeting, this confrontation, came after a series of defeats at Forts Mountjoy, Dungannon, Strabane, and Kinnard. Sir Phelim's military record was one of mediocrity, and he could hardly have contested the elder O'Neill's expertise on that front. Just over two weeks after their return to Charlemont, the Ulster Provincial Assembly gathered at Clona's on the 29th of August. The Assembly acknowledged the veteran O'Neill as their Lord General, and Sir Phelim as Lord President of Ulster. The Assembly did not even refer to the thorny issue of the Earldom of Tyrone. Shane O'Neill, the third Earl, had died in January 1641 in the Siege of Barcelona. Through a complex succession plan, the Earldom was theoretically held by his son, and in the eventual case of his childless death, it would go to another scion of the O'Neills still in Spanish service. Both Sir Phelim and Owen Rowe had claims on the title, as well as on the leadership of the O'Neills in the traditional Gaelic sense. For now, the matter of the Earldom was put off, but it did not help the working relationship of the two O'Neill leaders. Before the General Assembly meeting in October, the new Lord General took stock of the military situation, and he did not like what he saw. Ulster was a mess. It was, quote, like a hell, if there could be a hell on earth. Less than a year of rebellion and counter rebellion had left its people little better than the most remote Indians. He was even less impressed by his soldiers, quote, if one can call men soldiers who behave nothing better than criminals. The brutality of the violence so far horrified the Lord General, as it did his counterparts in the other three provinces, who we'll get into in a moment. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, the Continental veterans instilled the lessons they'd learnt in the Thirty Years' War, not just in terms of drill and strategy, but also the concept of rules of war. Despite their behaviour upon their arrival in Ireland, the Covenant Army under Robert Monroe and the Earl of Leven, Alexander Leslie, had also mellowed. After their brutally horrific conduct in the initial expeditions, motivated as they'd been by the horror stories which had reached Scotland of massacres and atrocities beyond belief, after a few months their professionalism began to return. As 1642 entered 1643, both the Confederate forces and their opponents settled into warfare with far fewer excesses against both citizens and captured soldiers. In addition to any moral or ethical concerns, or the increased discipline among the soldiery, the simple concept of reciprocity must have been the strongest motivator for many. What happens if I get captured? What happens if the enemy army passes through my village or captures my town? Maybe we shouldn't execute every prisoner or sack every home. This increasing professionalisation will keep the bloodshed of the Irish Confederate Wars far below the level of atrocity which characterised the first months of the Rebellion and the first campaigns of the Covenanters. Though, as we'll see, this soft touch will be railed against by some contemporaries. Before we go on, it's worth reminding ourselves that now Lord General O'Neill was not the only Irishman to return from continental service. John Jeremiah Cronin and Padraig Lenehan estimate that around 1,000 Irish soldiers and officers took leave from foreign duties and returned after the rebellion, mostly from service in Spain, France, and with the states of the Holy Roman Empire, with more filtering back over the following years. O'Neill's command of the Ulster Army was matched by John Burke's command in Connacht, Garrett Barry's command in Munster, and O'Neill's old compatriot and rival, Thomas Preston, taking command in Leinster. This brought some much-needed experienced leadership to the rebel, now Confederate, armies. When the General Assembly met in October 1642, as well as discussing the other matters we covered last time, the Assembly and the Supreme Council decided on the command structure of their armies. O'Neill was confirmed as the commander of the Provincial Ulster Army, but any ambition he might have had to hold overall command of all Confederate forces was not to be. The old English among the council were still wary of this foreign-trained Franciscan Ulsterman, because despite the stated aim of the Confederacy to show no prejudice, Ulstermen were sometimes seen as a breed apart, especially troublesome and barbaric, even by their fellow Gales. Those hoping to eventually come to terms with the Crown were sceptical, of O'Neill's stated royalism for good reason. It certainly didn't help O'Neill's case for overall command to fall to him when his cousin, Sir Phelim, argued against his appointment to the position. Instead, the Supreme Council named their overall commander to be the 5th Earl of Clanrickard, Ulick Burke. Now, this was a bit awkward, chain of command wise, because Clanrickard had not joined the Confederacy and still maintained a healthy distance from the Rebellion. However, it was assumed by the Council that his joining was merely a matter of time. As we'll see, this was not to be the case. Sir Phelim also decided that now would be a great time to remarry, and so he married the 18-year-old daughter of Thomas Preston, commander of the Leinster Provincial Army and well-known rival to Owen Rowe O'Neill. In response to the Sir Thalem-Preston marriage, O'Neill married his son into the family of Preston's own rival for the Leinster Command, Sir Luke Fitzgerald. Because when I said that factionalism within the Confederacy would put any other revolutionary government to shame, I meant it. Here we have provincial commanders forming marriage alliances with each other's rivals and this does not bode well for future cooperation. An Irish Franciscan wrote to the Irish College at Rome, warning them that all possible means must be considered to heal this rift between the cousins, else all Irish would suffer. Thank you to Alan for his donation and very kind email. I hope you enjoyed catching up with all the episodes between early 2020 and this one, and I hope you enjoy all the ones to come. Thank you to my House of Lords, which has gained the membership of... Some Guy, the Earl of Derbyshire, Lou Hartman, Earl of Caithness, and Baron Chris. If you'd like to join their ranks and receive ad-free versions of this and every other episode, go to patreon.com slash Britannica. Thank you to everyone who has recommended the podcast to a friend, it's the single best way to help a podcast grow, and thank you to everyone who's left a review. Thanks to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords for their support, and as always... To you for listening.